Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Brought to you by the Naked Scientists. The Cambridge Science Festival podcast. Welcome to the Cambridge Science Festival podcast with me, Mira Senthilingam, from thenakedscientist.com. Coming up, we find out if being happy is as important as we think it is, whether it's possible to die from a broken heart, and we look into quirkology, the psychology of everyday life. All that coming up on today's Cambridge Science Festival podcast. But first... Naked scientist Ben Valsler met up with 2006 FameLab winner Jonathan Wood to find out what geckos, spiders, sharks and daffodils have to do with materials. But it turns out that all of those things have come up with amazing engineering solutions that we can learn from and make new materials for ourselves. So, for example, a shark has got dimples on its skin that breaks up the flow of water over its skin, reducing the drag so it uses less energy. And Speedo reckons it can make better swimsuits, making its swimmers go faster using something similar. So should we expect to see Olympic athletes in shark suits? Well, the the all-in-one body suits that make them look so high-tech now, they are based on what Speedo's learnt from sharks. Now, we can argue whether they actually achieve all that Speedo says or not. Certainly, there doesn't appear to be the change in world records that you might have expected if it really worked. But it's, it's interesting science, nonetheless. I guess in Olympic sports, it's the tenths and hundredths of a second that make a difference. Absolutely. Uh, A tenth or a hundredth of a second is going to mean the difference between a medal. So even if it helps just a little bit, even if you can't quite show it by science, that's going to matter totally to the swimmer. And with daffodils, they've inspired some beautiful paintings, some lovely poetry, but how have they inspired science? Well, daffodils are interesting. Um, When the wind blows... A daffodil doesn't bend over like a, like a tulip might. Instead, it twists and turns its head out of the wind. So it's got this strength in the stem, but it's also inbuilt this type of flexibility that allows it to twist and keep its head up in the wind. But we, we tend to want to do something different. When we build something strong, we want it to be stiff. So that's an example of where nature's done something different because it's got different priorities than we do. And so what do geckos have to do with Spider-Man? Geckos. Geckos are amazing at sticking. They can scurry up the smoothest wall without even a second thought. Uh, And the way they do it is by having hundreds of thousands of tiny hairs on their toes. And these hairs make use of a a tiny sticky force called the Van der Waals force. And it's tiny on one hair, but if you add it up over the hundreds of thousands of hairs, it's really sticky. So they can cling to walls like Spider-Man did, uh, but they can hold their weight maybe 50 to 100 times over. It's a remarkable thing. And have we developed the technology based on this effect? We can now make materials uh, that are hairy, much like a gecko's foot. Uh, they are, if you create, say, a plastic film with lots of plastic fibres sticking out of it, and you make them close enough, you can make something that sticks purely through Van der Waals forces. We're not as good as a gecko yet, but uh, we may be able to scale the Empire State Building soon. 
Fantastic. And finally, what do you think of the Cambridge Science Festival? Is this your first time here? I came here briefly last year, but this year is so busy, uh, it's so active, and the, and the children especially are, are so bright and enjoying it. It's a wonderful atmosphere. That was Jonathan Wood, editor of Materials Today, talking to Ben about using nature to engineer materials. Now, are you happy? Are you really, really happy? The way society is today, we're all expected to be happy. And if we're not happy, we're told to pursue happiness until we reach it. But what if I was to tell you that it's just as important to be miserable and regretful and lonely? That's the message Nick Bayliss was planning to spread at the festival. So I met up with him to ask him more about what he was going to be talking about. Well, I'll be complaining at all the hype around how we should prioritise being happy because I don't believe it for a moment. Why is happiness not important? Because happiness is no more important than sadness. Our emotions are merely a fuel. I say merely a fuel, an extremely important fuel, the only fuel we've got, to get us where we want to go in life. And our emotions are also a compass to guide us where we want to go in life. So they serve a superb purpose. But our painful emotions like regret, sadness, loneliness shame, embarrassment, fear, are just as useful to us. And I'm sure if we look into our own lives, we can think of times when those painful emotions, we manage to get a, a saddle and reins on them and ride them in a, in a helpful direction, just as helpful to us as any pleasing emotions like love or friendship or hope or pride, which can easily derail us if we don't ride them well. And unfortunately, painful emotions have got an awful bad press for quite some time now. I guess a lot of people would think that those painful times happen for them to then appreciate maybe the happy times so what is the right combination of emotion well you're quite right it's painful emotions and the pleasurable emotions work like yin and yang night and day hot and cold boy and girl they complement each other they're allies they're a natural brother and sister and without one you can't have the other people always ask me how can i feel happier and I realise the answer to that is, well, you have to feel sadder first. Because if I want to enjoy my cheese and tomato sandwich more, I have to feel hungrier first. And so what are you going to be doing tonight in order to prove and discuss this point further? I should be looking at beauty. I think nature gives us a few clues as to how important our emotions are and also gives us some clues that actually maximising our pleasure, being as happy as possible, is not what we're hardwired, not what we're designed by evolution. We're hardwired to progress, improve our relationship with life. The people around us, the fauna and flora, the planet, our subconscious minds and our bodies. And we mustn't mistake the means for the ends. The means are our emotions, but they are not our ends. You mentioned to me that you're going to be showing some clips from films and things like that today as part of this. So what clips will you be showing and how are they going to stress your point further? I'll be using Brokeback Mountain because one of the themes tonight is love and I think love's a wonderful example of how, I'm sure, I hope we've all been in love before and it hurts like hell but it's exquisitely pleasurable and we do it anyway. We dare to let ourselves fall in love and be in love, even though we know there will be heartache en route. So what do you want your visitors that come along to the talk today to walk away thinking? I'd like them to go away thinking, I needn't be so, so scared of being hurt in life, because if I get hurt, if I feel pain of, of shame or embarrassment or loneliness, that primes me, that sets me up to feel pleasure. It won't guarantee it, but it, it's rather like when we get hungry, that boy, that cheese and tomato sandwich is going to taste fabulous when we actually get there. So it's all about the journey. Now, 
When some of us find love, it can often feel like it's possible to conquer the world. But what happens when the love is lost? Could the effect be so bad that we can die from a broken heart? Martin Cowie came to the festival to explore this further. I'm talking about the heart and how it responds to emotion and also the key question of can you die from a broken heart? Can you? You can die from a broken heart. There's been several studies over recent years that shown there's about a 50% increase in the risk of dying in the six months after you lose your life partner. And it's particularly a risk for men rather than women. And there's been studies since the 1960s showing this. And it's consistent in Europe, North America, all sorts of different societies. So yes, you can die of a broken heart. And so what actually happens to cause you to die, though? It's a variety of different things. A small portion is that people take more risk when they're very upset. And so accidents and suicides go up in the first few weeks after bereavement. I think we can all understand why that would be. But a more powerful effect is the effect on stroke and heart problems. It's not entirely clear why that goes up, but definitely it does go up. And it's probably related to the fact you're more stressed, you've got more adrenaline. You're going to be talking in general about how emotions can affect your health and your well-being. Yes, indeed. But, of course, the body is designed to respond to different stresses and strains, and we've all got a response system inside us that reacts to stress, whether it's emotional or physical. So if you're running away from somebody, or if you're actually in love, or if you're going on a roller coaster, all of those things can fire off your emotional system. And the heart responds, speeds up, gets slightly breathless, your pupils dilate. All of that is hardwired into us and that's a good thing we don't want to live life so that's dull all the time but on the other hand if it's too much of that for a long period particularly if it's a negative emotion that's triggered it it can have harmful effects on your heart and so what kind of things are you going to be showing to help explain your point well i'm going to show a few clips of rather stressful extreme sports which will get people used to the idea of what they like to go for and many of us are adrenaline junkies we just love that feeling of adrenaline and afterwards you get it on the ski slopes you get on a roller coaster I'm also going to remind people that actually when you fall in love at first, it's a very similar feeling with the same way that the body responds to that. Then I'm going to share some stories about people that have died very shortly after their partner has died. And then at the last, just out of interest, there's a very rare condition called takosubos, which means octopus pot in Japanese and that's where with a sudden stress your body pours out so much adrenaline it stuns your heart and it stops pumping properly can be fatal it's usually in women more than men and it can occur in any race it's only been described since 1991 and if doctors recognise it and treat it properly you can recover fully your heart um, recovers from all that adrenaline What could cause such an effect? It's usually something like an extreme argument or an extreme fright or something like a stroke happening as well where you suddenly get a severe headache and you get an outpouring of adrenaline. Um, A scorpion sting can be enough. just stimulates it. Something very painful, either emotional or physical, can trigger it. It is a rare condition, though, but it is quite interesting, and that's why I'm mentioning it. And so one thing Nick's been talking about today is happiness is overemphasised, let's say. So physiologically speaking, is it important for us to feel a variety of emotions to remain healthy? Well, I think we all do feel a variety of emotions, and our body's designed to react to that, just as it's designed to be able to sleep and to rest, but also to exercise. And I think we should be trying to put our bodies through the whole of that range. And I think lots and lots of artists and writers have got a much clearer answer than a scientist, saying that if you haven't loved and lost, you haven't really lived.
lived. So I think the body's designed to cope with that vast majority of the time. And the only thing to be careful is if either you or a friend loses a, a life partner, they will need more support during that period. They should treat any symptoms seriously, but with good care and attention, they can return to a full active life. That was Professor Martin Cowie from Imperial College London discussing the effects of a broken heart. And before that, Dr Nick Bayliss telling us that happiness isn't everything. Science in its element. The Cambridge Science Festival. Now it's time for today's festive question. My name is James and my question is how do 3D goggles work? And here's Naked Scientist Dave Ansell with the answer. To understand how 3D goggles work, you've got to understand how you see things in 3D in the first place. There's various different mechanisms, but the ones which the 3D goggles use is called the stereoscopic effect. Now, if you've ever held your finger up close to your face, then shut one eye and then the other eye, because you're looking at it from two different places, a few inches apart, you see your finger in different places with respect to objects in the distance. The further away your finger is from your face, the less it seems to move. So by comparing the images from your two eyes, you can get some idea of how far away different objects are. The ones which change positions a lot between your two eyes are obviously close to you. The ones which hardly change at all must be a long way away. So basically, you can produce a 3D effect by giving your two eyes a different image. So basically, to get a 3D effect, you want to give your two different eyes two different images from slightly different places. So you film a film with two cameras separated by a few inches or a few feet, depending how big you want the effect to be. When you want to get those images back into your my eyes, there's various different James, ways of doing it. One of the older versions is, involves projecting the two images work? in different colours onto a screen. So red could be for your right eye and blue for your left eye. So you put a red filter over your right eye and a blue filter over your left eye, so that just sees the blue image. And so you, you get the 3D effect. How you see things is very strange colour effects. There's so more modern systems have used various other ways to get two images called the stereoscopic effect. One of them is to use polarised light. Now, if you ever held your finger up close to a screen and image for your right eye with vertical because you're looking at it from two different places, a few inches apart, and projecting the finger in different places, left eye with horizontal light. The further away your finger is from your face, the less it seems to move. So by comparing the images from your two eyes and other images, you get some idea of how far away different objects are. You can also project one image from your right eye and then one image from your left eye very quickly one after another, and which hardly changes at all. Must be a long way away. So basically, you can produce a 3D effect by giving your two eyes a different image. So basically, you can have two different images, two different eyes, two different images, two different different places. And then the film film with two two different images by a few inches, especially from the computer game, one from your right eye, one from your left eye. And when you want to get those images back into your eyes, there's various different ways of doing it. One of the older versions involves projecting the two images in different colours onto a screen. So red could be for your right eye and blue for your left eye. So you put a red filter over your right eye and a blue filter over your left eye, so that just sees a blue image, and so you get the 3D effect. Unfortunately, this produces very strange colour effects. So more modern systems have used various other ways of getting these two images to your two eyes. One of them is to use polarised light. So you project onto a screen an image for your right eye with vertically polarised light and put a vertically polarised filter in front of your right eye and project onto the screen an image of your left eye with horizontally polarised light with a horizontally polarised filter in front of your left eye. So your left eye sees one image, your right eye sees another image, and you get a 3D effect again. You can also project one image for your right eye and then one image for your left eye very quickly, one after another, have little shutters over the two eyes so they get to the right eye at the right time. Or for the very sophisticated modern computer games, you can actually have two different computer screens, one for your right eye, one for your left eye, and then the computer produces two different images especially from the computer game, one for your right eye, one for your left eye, and you get that 3D effect as well. So that explains why the goggles we wear at 3D films have changed over time. 
Have you ever wondered why we find certain jokes funny? Or how the lamest of chat-up lines still seem to work? Well, you may not have done, but Richard Wiseman has turned the study of everyday psychology into its own science, quirkology. But what is this new science? Ben met up with Richard to find out. Quirkology is all of the, the curious psychology and quirky psychology that I've been doing over the years. So work which is hopefully very relevant to people's lives. Um, so, for example, how do you spot a liar? What's the funniest joke in the world? Um, uh, what's the best chat-up line? All these things which get psychology really out of the lab and into people's lives. One of the things you talked about is whether or not people are genuinely lucky. And what have you found? Do you get lucky people and unlucky people? We had about 1,000 exceptionally lucky and unlucky people through the lab over about a 10-year period. And what we could see is that for the most part, they were making their own good and bad luck by the way they were thinking and behaving. So the lucky people very open to opportunities. When they came along, they made the most of them. The unlucky people kind of stuck in a rut. So even when something came along that was very exciting, they simply didn't want to incorporate it into their lives. So what I became fascinated by was the psychology of luck, how it is we create good and bad fortune. And is this the sort of thing also that would affect whether or not a chat-up line is any good? Well, you could try and get lucky with, uh, with some of the other research. Uh, but there we did an experiment uh, with speed dating. And we had um, uh, 100 single men and, and women uh, all trying to chat each other up. And at the end of the evening, we looked at the most effective line, the one that got people saying, yes, I really want to meet this person again. And they were lines that were unusual, that got people to open up to talk about themselves in a humorous way. So if you're going to be a pizza topping, which one would you be? Uh, which sounds kind of silly and maybe slightly naff, but when you try it, not that I have, but if you were to, what you find uh, is that people then are talking about themselves in a way that makes them smile and makes them think. And we know, again, from a, a social psychological perspective, that sort of shared humorous experience can make people seem very attractive. Well, if a shared humorous experience is attractive, then what did you find was the best joke in the world? Uh, well, the, the best joke in the world I actually have, have grown to loathe over the years. I've, I've told it so many times, and it's not a very good joke. Uh, what we did was to have people come online and vote uh, for their favourite joke, have about, around about uh, 10,000. And the winning joke was that the two hunters in the woods, one falls over and is laying there motionless, the other one panics, he whips out his, uh, his mobile phone, he calls emergency services, he says, I don't know what to do, my friend's laying there completely motionless. And the woman says, look, calm down, we're here to help. First of all, we have to make certain he's dead and then she hears a pause and a gunshot and the hunter comes back on the phone and says okay done that now what now i can't stand the joke uh, i don't think it's very funny at all so in terms of finding the world's funniest joke i don't think it should be a mass vote uh, i i think it's really down to individual sense of humor well in that case what's your own personal favorite joke that is if it's all right for air uh, it, it absolutely is. There's a few of them. Um, I think probably my favourite one, um, because it was so unusual, was the Alsatian that goes to send a, a telegram. And so the Alsatian goes into the telegram office. He says, the telegram is woof, 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 woof. And, and the man behind the desk says, you know, for the same price, you could send an extra woof. And the dog says, don't be stupid. That wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, obviously you've covered some of the more fun aspects of life, but what's the future for Quirkology? Uh, well, the, the future, I hope, is very bright. The website is incredibly active. We get around about 5,000 uh, new visitors a day. Uh, there are experiments on there all of the time, uh, and they, each of them uh, have about 20,000 people taking part in them. So one of them is looking at the influence that the first name that you have influences, uh, your, your, how that influences your life. Other work looking at the psychology of charisma and why it is that some people are... are 
charismatic. So lots of things which, which really I just find fascinating. It's, it's all part of everyday life, but there's some good science there as well. And we can find that at quirkology.com. Absolutely. There's two ways of getting there. richardwiseman.com is my own website. Uh, quirkology.com will also take you there. That was Richard Wiseman from the University of Hertfordshire explaining how we make our own luck and how to get lucky at speed dating. I wonder what pizza topping I would be. Well, that's it for today's podcast. But coming up on the next and final podcast, we find out about a hundred-year plan to create the biggest wetland in the east of England. And we explore the human brain to find out how we make sense of language and how we respond to fear. I'm Mira Senthilingam, and this edition of the Cambridge Science Festival podcast was produced by thenakedscientists.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.